I'm going to invite you to turn to the book of James, chapter 2, this morning. Um, if I don't know you, my name is Kirk. I'm the pastor of communities and missional discipleship, if I can say that. And uh, been here about eight months. And my one kind of drawback of getting up to preach is just that I don't know everybody yet. And that's hard for me because I like to have a connection. And so if I haven't got to know you, I'd love to uh, do that if that's possible. Also, we all have limitations on how many people we can know. So uh, anyway, it's good to be here. It's a privilege to share God's word with you. And that's what we're going to do. So uh, if you have an app or Bible, like I said, we're in James chapter 2 uh, in verse 10 to 19. And I'm going to read that for us and then we will dive in. Okay, so James 2, <clears throat> starting in verse 10, says this. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgments without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy, mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have uh, works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage of scripture. Thank you that you have spoken to us. And I pray, God, that we would not just hear your word, but it would come alive now. Um, your word is living and active. And I pray it would come alive in our hearts and our minds so that it can come alive in our lives, Lord Jesus. That's my prayer, I pray that you would give me the ability to speak in a way that would honor you, glorify you, and that you give us all an ability to follow you, uh, Jesus, from this time together. In your name, amen. Okay, so like I said, we are in James 2. We're in this series called The Gospel on the Ground. And I love that name. It's a great name for this series. And, and we've been looking at um, how the gospel does inform our trials, how it informs uh, the way that we live with one another. That was the, the message last week was how does the gospel deal with our partiality and how uh, do we deal with the fact that in this church and these churches, these scattered communities, there were people who were being looked up to because they were rich and cared for and then people who were poor that weren't being cared for as much. And this is a pretty common dynamic we see throughout the ancient world and in the, in the, in the Bible, like it happens in 1 Corinthians as well. And so this partiality that, that he's writing to them about, um, I think in one sense, we've been looking at James as like this playbook for trials. I think I, I see a little bit of why they might be partial. And that is because um, you know what it's like when you play for a sports team and, and you start losing, right? Have you guys ever been on a sports team? You've started to lose. Um, and uh, what happens is people start chipping at each other, right? And people start getting upset and they say losing causes problems and winning solves everything. And I, I don't know if that's true in life, but on sports teams, it does seem to be that way. I've been, I've been a coach and I've done various things with sports. And I think that like that does kind of happen to be true. And so I think that uh, in one sense, I can understand the temptation towards partiality in the midst of trials that these people are going through. When you start to go through difficult things, you start to look at other people and say, well, why are they getting through on that? And why are they that way? And, and, and you start to have this mindset that I think is unhealthy. And, and he's dealt with that last week as we looked at verses one to eight, this gap between honoring the rich and honoring the poor. Um, that's what James has been dealing with. And what he does here in verse 10, where we're going to start today, is he's going to just double down. He's going to actually say, let me tell you even more reasons and actually the death blow reason why partiality is unacceptable and not in step with the gospel at all. Okay, and so he's going he's to do that for us. So um, 
as I give a preview of where we're going, just to help you a little bit, what we're talking about today in this section is James showing us what real faith looks like. Okay, so what does real faith, faith look like and what does false faith look like? And to have the gospel on the ground in our lives, we need to know what the true effects of the gospel should be or else we're not gonna be able to discern if this actually is taking root and effect in our lives at all. And so from this text today, we're gonna see three things. First of all, real faith is full of God's mercy. Secondly, real faith is living and active. And then third, real faith must be complete. Okay, so real faith is full of God's mercy. Real faith is living and active. And then real faith must be complete. So start in verse 10. Let's look at that again as we begin. It says, once again, for whoever keeps the law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Okay. What I love about where we're starting today is that James is going to give us a really clear understanding of what the gospel is in this section. Okay, and he starts out where the gospel, the good news, always starts out, and that is the bad news. And, and the reason, though, he's doing this is because he's trying to show these scattered communities that the partiality they're experiencing is out of line with the core foundational aspects of the gospel because the gospel levels us all before God. Okay? And he's in doing this is showing that our greatest need for every single individual on the planet, whether rich, poor, black, white, young or old, man, woman, citizen or immigrant, all of our greatest need is the mercy of God because all of us are lawbreakers in God's world. So we got to stop here for a second because um, A, that sounds kind of harsh sometimes to some people. B, I'm not sure everybody agrees with the premise that James is talking about here. Okay, his premise is if you've broken one law, you've broken them all. I mean, how many of us struggle with that or have, have dealt with that a little bit? Like saying, well, that doesn't quite make sense to me. Like if I've stolen something, I haven't murdered anyone. And if I have, um, you know, lied, I haven't really committed adultery. But that's because our modern way of thinking is a compartmentalized way of thinking that isn't the same as ancient cultures. Okay, so uh, for example, both the Roman culture and the ancient Israeli and Hebrew and, and other cultures, Mesopotamian cultures, they viewed morality as a full system, okay? For example, Rome, um, the Roman moralist Seneca claimed in one of his treaties that he said, he who has one vice has them all, all right? And then the, in the law of God, the picture we get in the Old Testament is that it's all interconnected, it's holistic. Um, and, and this makes sense in a way if, if you think about it, because if I have not honored God first, the first commandment, if I've made idols, those first set of commandments, if I've not honored God, then what's gonna flow out of me in biblical terms is gonna be things that aren't honoring to other people. I'm not gonna honor my parents. I'm not going to, I'm gonna feel free to lie to people because there's no God keeping me accountable. I'm gonna feel free to steal from people, all this kind of stuff that is in the 10 commandments. And so to the Jews, the law was, more, was not like this pile of stones that you can take one and kind of place it to the side and say like, oh, okay, it's still standing. The law was like a piece of glass, okay? The law was like a piece of glass. And, and so let's think about that a little bit. Um, have you ever broken a piece of glass? Okay, when I was a teenager, I sat down on my parents' table one time just being goofy and stupid and just broke a sheet of glass on the table with my bum. Um, but uh, more than that, when I was uh, in England, uh, one of the things I noticed was that the, the backyards were really tiny and um, kids would play soccer in their backyards. And all I can say is that English kids kick the ball really, really hard because they're good soccer players, unlike many in America. If you're a soccer player, I'm sorry, America's fine. Uh, I'm just saying, like, look, those kids kick the ball really hard. And, and what would happen from time to time is some ball would go through the window, kind of like baseballs here in America, right? So um, imagine this, you're in this yard and the kid kicks the ball through the window and his defense to his parents as he comes to explain what, what's happened is, well, look, um, it's not, I, I just hit one part of the window. And, and look, it's not completely broken. Look, there's still some full jagged pieces out of the frame right there. It's okay. Like it's, the, the window's not fully broken. No, 
it's broken and there's no coming back. And that's kind of the right way to think about uh, morality in God's terms in the Bible is that uh, God, this window to God is his law and it perfectly reflects all that he is and his nature and who he is and and what his goodness is and his desires for mankind. And, And we've broken that in origin our first parents, Adam and Eve, and every single one of us in some way has broken that picture of who God is. And, and it's, he's the lawgiver, and it's a personal offense, and it's also just a shattering of that window. So unlike the way we think about it, the moral law is not multiple choice, okay? You don't get to say, oh, I'm six out of ten there, I'm doing okay. Um, no. In fact, James clarifies that for us in this passage because the next thing he says is that um, he who said don't commit adultery also said don't murder. If you don't commit adultery but you do murder, you're still a transgressor of the law. So we've had the kid in the yard picture, right? That, That kind of analogy. Now let's think of another analogy like you're in a courtroom. And that courtroom, uh, there's somebody who's definitely guilty. Like you guys have been following, I'm sure there's a famous trial going on and some people think he's definitely guilty, he's definitely innocent, whatever. Like, um, but so we're in a courtroom, we all can see clearly like, dude, that guy did it. He's got like the proverbial OJ Simpson glove on his hand and it fits, you know. Um, and so like he's guilty of that murder. He's guilty of that crime. And imagine then is this guy has killed somebody, taken somebody's life, and he comes up on to request, you know, to, to testify, and he says, Judge, listen, I know the evidence is stacked against me here. Um, I know what it looks like, but I just want to tell you, I want to make it clear, I've been faithful to my wife the entire time we've been married. What does that have to do with anything? <laughs> You've murdered somebody. You've taken the image bearer's life. This is, we're not talking about your lack of adultery here. And so James takes this very intentionally, just like uh, Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount, right? This is the way James and the sermon flow together. Jesus said, if you've been angry with someone you've murdered, if you've lusted, then you've committed adultery in your heart. And so James is doing the same thing here where he's trying to show us like, hey, there is no out Okay, and you could come up with all the excuses that you haven't done this or haven't done that, but in reality, you are a lawbreaker. And I think it's really interesting, too, in the context of the favoritism that's going on in these communities that he uses this idea of murder. Because think about it for a second. Um, Poor people are not being cared for. Rich people are being cared for. And they could think, like, look, look, we're so good. We're, like, taking care of the body and we're doing this. But then these poor people aren't being cared for. And literally these believers were not completely naked, but they were poor and impoverished to the point where they couldn't provide for their own needs. And so therefore, if they can provide for their own needs and they didn't have food, what's gonna happen to them? They're gonna die. And so James really just says like, you think you're so good in judging one another, you know, but you're really just like the law says, murderers. And so, This confronts us in so many ways in our society because we tend to lessen the effects of our sin. All right? Um, we look at how people are just vicious with each other now, sadly. Like, we are polarized in this world. We are at each other's throats. We judge each other so quickly. We judge each other, ju- judge each other so deeply at such a superficial level. We make assumptions about people and what they believe and who they are from one tweet or one post or whatever it may be. And, and, and that's all because we've abandoned this leveling effect of the gospel. The gospel levels every single person. And any time that I would stand up to say like, hey, look at what you're doing, while it may be true, I'm just as much a lawbreaker. And so by judging their neighbors partially, they've been indirectly been judging God's law. And now he's gonna move on here in verse 12 and 13. He's shown us all that we all need mercy. So um, hopefully that, that helped you a little bit. If you're a visitor or a guest and you're not yet a Christian, um, look, we're not trying to offend you. God's not trying, but he is holy. Not murdering is good. Not committing adultery is good. Not stealing is good. Not lying is good. Honoring parents is good. This is objective truth, whether our society says it or not. And so I I hope you, even if you reject that law, have like Romans 2 says, a a law in your own conscience where you know you've done wrong in some way. Even the laws you build for yourself, you're like, yeah, I've kind of messed that up. Like, here's the reality. 
the moral law shown in God's law and in creation and in our conscience just levels us all. It says we are not okay. And that's bad news because um, it says here that we need to speak and act as those who are going to be judged under the law of liberty. And there will be a judgment that takes place at some point in human history. There will be a judgment that takes place in, in some point in our lives. Life is short, it's a vapor, like Ecclesiastes says, and one day we're going to stand before this lawgiver, and he's going to have that perfect image there before us of himself, and there won't be any way, like, you know, like the guy in court saying, like, oh, I didn't commit adultery. There's no way around what we've done. Here's the good news, though. Mercy in this passage, is God's glorious triumph. Mercy is God's triumph. Mercy is what we all need. Mercy is what God gives in his triumph over our sin. See, the standard that God has is unbreakable, is one sheet of glass. But at the same time, since we've broken it, the good thing for us is that our God, the God who is the creator of this universe, is a God of mercy. You see this all throughout the Old Testament. I was just reading the Psalms this morning and it talks about God being the, the father to the fatherless. God being those who t- takes the solitary and puts them in families. God is just this pictured as having mercy on all his creation, just providing for all the needs that they have. The air, you know, the, 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 the water that we drink, everything that we if, we, if it was taken away, we would be very cognizant of our need for mercy. And yet, this is who God is. He's a merciful God. And that's demonstrated, and that's kind of pictured here. This, this passage is doing two things. It's alluding to the mercy of God, but then it's also saying, then you should act that way. Okay, so um, first of all, it alludes to the mercy of God in the fact that um, if we go back to verse 1, there's something mentioned that, that I want to point out to you at the beginning of this passage. It says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, That's a key phrase here because this is what the Bible says about the glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord Jesus, and what he said so often over and over again was my hour is coming, my glory is coming, was the humiliation and the mercy that he acted upon on the cross to secure our forgiveness so that he could pour out mercy to you. So that if you would just admit that you are a lawbreaker, that you have shattered that image, if you would just do that, then God says, I've done everything I possibly could to secure the mercy that I need to give to you. Your greatest need is my greatest triumph. You know, Jesus expressed this, that this is the heart of God when he said, blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy in the Sermon on the Mount. And here it's like, hey, judgment's coming. And he kind of flips it. Like you're not gonna get mercy if you're not merciful. And the heart of this passage is showing that if you've ever seen God for who he is as a merciful God, you will have to be merciful with other people. It will just come out of you. That is the way it is. One man said it this way, those who never show any mercy cannot have internalized and accepted God's mercy. It's actually an impossibility. Jesus and the cross of Jesus becomes the benchmark for what God's glory looks like. To the world, it's unimpressive. To the world, it's a peasant Jew dying on the cross, but to God, it is the very purchase of the forgiveness that he can offer to those in humanity who have been lawbreakers. John Chrysostom said that mercy is clothed with the divine glory and stands by the throne of God. Mercy is at the very heart of who God is and what he does. Um, Tucker's been taking us through uh, the gospel on the ground through movies, so I thought I'd play with that a little bit. So I'm gonna share a movie illustration this morning too. Um, Who's seen the movie Sandlot? I mean, if you haven't, you gotta see this movie, right? Like you've got Yeah Yeah, you've got Squints and Wendy Peppercorn, you've got Repeat, you've got Scotty Smalls, Benny the Jet, anyway, if you haven't seen it, you gotta see it. I think it's on Disney+. Plus. Um, so it's, it's supposed to be clean. Um, anyway, so this movie is one of my favorites. And 
particularly for one of the, the scenes near the end of the movie. And the movie kind of revolves around a young boy who moves to town, doesn't know much about baseball. His stepdad really likes baseball. He finds these kids, starts playing baseball. And uh, in the midst of all of that, uh, makes friends. And then they're playing in the sandlot every day, pretty much. And one day they're, they're playing with a ball and this guy, Benny, hits the ball and knocks the cover right off. And uh, because of that, they're like, oh, what are we going to do? This, this, uh, th- we don't have another ball. And, and there's this house on the corner, uh, it, basically behind the field. And there's this big beast, they call him, this dog that, that they, they'll never go in and find all the balls they've hit over the fence. And so um, anyway, Smalls, this guy, Scotty Smalls, goes to his stepdad's uh, trophy room. And he takes out this baseball. And because he's a kid who doesn't know much about baseball, what he doesn't know is that when it's signed Babe Ruth, that doesn't mean a girl named Babe Ruth. Okay. That means actually like a legend of baseball. So he takes this, this baseball and he actually uh, takes it out. They start playing with it. He hits a home run, goes over the fence into the beast domain and they can't get it back. Well, finally he gets it back. Um, and through a series of events, but it's ruined and slobber filled and scratched up. And they had, the dog got out, they take the dog back to, they finally, they, they thought this guy, they, they were scared of the neighbor, the, the, the house, they're like, who is this guy? And they walk up and they knock on the door and this charming old man um, named Mr. Myrtle answers the door. And they begin to talk and the guy, he's blind, but he takes the ball and he can feel it. And he's just like, oh, you're in trouble, aren't you? Small says, that was my stepdad's ball and I took it without asking. It was signed by Babe Ruth. Mr. Myrtle says, you're not in trouble, you're dead where you stand. (laughs) So the mercy comes where he says this, here, he takes them into his trophy room, which is replete. And he says, here, I'll trade you. This one's not only signed by Babe Ruth, George, he calls him because he knows him. And the rest, it's signed by him and the rest of the 1927 Yankees. To which Smalls replies, why would you trade? He says, I got a lot of good stuff and you need it more than I do. That is a picture of the mercy of God. We come to God with our broken, scratched up, ruined baseball, our sin. That's all we bring. Nothing to him can we bring, simply to the cross we cling. And he gives us this treasure trove, this ball of infinite value, this pearl of great price. What a picture of mercy. And and you see Lamentations 3, 22 to 23 says this. It says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. His mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And the picture there is that God has just fat stacks of mercy in his trophy room. And he's just looking to say, who can I give this out to? I have got plenty. So if you come here this morning, you're like, that first part was a bit harsh. You're calling me a sinner and a lawbreaker and someone who has destroyed the image of God and the image of man. Yes, but here's the great news of the gospel is that you have a God who's merciful and it will give you all that you need. That's how in Christ, mercy triumphs over judgment. And so therefore he's saying, stop being partial. Mercy should just triumph. If, if you have received this, how ought you to act with your brothers and sisters in Christian community? Well, um, second, we're going to see that not only is real faith full of God's mercy, but real faith is alive with action. Look at verse 14. Um, verse 14 says, What good is it then, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but doesn't have works. Can that faith save him? Can that faith save him? So this introduces us to a concept and both this week and next week, uh, somebody else will talk about next week, we were talking about this idea of faith and works, right? And this is a constant thing, like if you've been part of religious systems, maybe even prominent ones here in town, um, then you'll, you'll know that this is often used as a, a, a disputation or a reason why salvation certainly couldn't be by only the mercy of God and the grace that he gives us. It has to be by something we contribute as well. And so people imagine when they read this section of scripture that there's a fight between James and Paul. And like Martin Luther thought this, and that's why he called James the straw epistle. Like we should burn it up. Like, but, but in reality, there's no fight here at all, I don't think. I think it's a matter of context. 
Words are used in different contexts. And so for, to illustrate that, like what if I told you this morning that um, something was dope? What would you think? Like some of you guys that are older might think like, it sounds like a drug to me. <laughs> some of you might think um, that sounds like a foolish person, a dope, you know, like dopey, the, the seven dwarf or whatever. Um, and then some of you know that that means in our modern vernacular, like, hey, that's pretty cool. You know, it's dope. Um, that's what I think, cause I'm hip and you know, all that kind of stuff. But, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that's a great dad joke, isn't it? See, I'm embarrassing my kids, I'm sure. Um, so anyway, if you use the word dope, you know that that's a contextual word that is defined by generation and context. And it's the same way with faith and works in the context of the book of James. So um, one guy, uh, Jay Gresham Mockin said this, Paul and James are coherent in their teaching. Paul is not using justification, which means to be right with God in one way and James in another. Rather, the difference lies in how each uses faith and works. Now listen, the faith that James condemns as useless here, the faith that James condemns is different than the faith that Paul commends. The work that James commends is different from the works that Paul condemns. In other words, James isn't, is condemning faith that isn't active, and Paul condemns trying to earn faith through your actions. Okay, so it's kind of a tongue twister, but it's very important to see the context. And you can see that it flows out of what the Protestant Reformation called the doctrine of sola fide, or only by faith. Okay, but even them who said it's only by faith and grace in Christ that we can be saved to God's glory, they also said this, we're saved by faith alone, but that faith does not and can't remain alone. So Paul was speaking to Jewish legalists about being saved or declared righteous through the works of the Torah and saying that's not possible. James is saying people are separating fruit and faith and they need to understand that they're Fruit vindicates or authenticates what they say they believe out of heart-born acts of righteousness and mercy. Okay, so having said all that, that's what he's doing. He's saying like, there's a type of faith that's not faith. There's a false faith. There's a false, I, I kept saying that wrong. False face, false faith. It's kind of similar, it's like a masquerade, like a mask for Halloween or something like that. So false faith. There's a false faith that is a dead faith. That's what he says in verses 14 to 17. What does that mean? Well, first of all, it's bookended by what good is it? So it's showing it's useless. And what is that useless faith? Well, that useless faith, it, it could be uh, illustrated in, in many, many ways. Um, but that useless faith is essentially saying that there is not a matchup between my words and between my actions. Okay. Um, the great philosopher Rousseau, for example, said this about himself. He said, whoever examines my, with, his, with his own eyes, my nature, character, morals, inclinations, pleasures, habits, and can believe me to be a dishonest man is himself a man who deserves to be strangled. So he's saying, I'm awesome, <laughs> I'm great. But here's the fruit of his life. He disowned his own parents and when his brother was lost, he sought him out only to find out if he, he could get his inheritance from him. And then all his children who were born, he took them to an orphanage and that orphanage had the stats of three-fourths of the children dying in the first year and 14 out of 100 making it to age seven. So Rousseau apparently wasn't as great as he thought he was. His fruit didn't match his faith, okay? And so... The Bible says it this way in 1 John 3, 17 to 18, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. And this presents a problem in the sense of like, it does thrust us into this thing like, okay, well, what do I actually need to do? To be saved. Well, again, you don't need to do anything but believe. Jesus said the work of God is, you know, to believe in him who he sent. You, you're saved by faith alone. It's just saying, but you will show things. Well, what will you show? And, and does that mean that I've got to be like doing things all the time? Like, uh, like every homeless person that I, that I run across, do I have to give them money? Because then I'd be broke by tomorrow. Like, especially I was in uh, Cincinnati this past week. And, um, and by the way, my sports team lost. Oh, it's terrible. Anyway, um, but I was there and uh, there was 
sadly, a lot more homeless people than in Boise, Idaho, because it's a little bit bigger city. And um, so I'm walking along, and all of a sudden, this guy comes up to me and says, like, hey, would you buy me a cup of coffee? We're right outside Starbucks. And I said, sure. Because my philosophy on this, by the way, is just that, like, hey, Jesus said, if anyone asks you, then give to him. So I'm like, all right, well, you asked me, so I'm going to give to you. I mean, I'm not going to give to everyone, but I'm going to give to you because you asked me, so I bought him a cup of coffee. And he didn't ask me for drugs or anything like that. Ask me for a cup of coffee, you get a cup of coffee. So we go in there, and, and all, I, all I'm saying in this regard is like not to pump myself up at all because it's just like a cup of coffee. But the point is I had to grapple with this thing. Who do I do good to? What are the acts of mercy? And, and what we see, first of all, is some hints in this passage. How can my faith match up? Well, first of all, to the brothers. It says brothers right there. And then we go to other passages of the scripture. We get some more idea. First Timothy 5. It says, Brothers, if anyone doesn't provide for the needs of his own household, then he is worse than an unbeliever. Okay, Galatians 6.10 says, do good to all, especially to the household of God, household of faith. And then we have other scriptures that do talk about the household of humanity, like Jeremiah 29, do good to the city that you dwell in, do good and, 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 and show acts of mercy there. So the way I view it is like this spheres of influence where God's giving me this gift of mercy that I'm stewarding, it's in me, and it's going to explode out into all these spheres of my household, of the church family, and then into the world. That's, that's the priority structure, that it's like a ripple effect out of my heart into the lives of those around me. That's what should be happening. And then as those things happen all throughout, they're interconnected and they point back to the fact that I have real faith. Okay. And if none of those spheres are there, then there's a problem. There's a problem. So guys, if you're not spiritually, emotionally, physically caring for your family, there's a problem with what you call your faith. Okay. You're responsible it says in Ephesians 6, for the padea, the instruction in the Lord of every aspect of your children's lives. And in the same way, if you say you're a person of faith in Christ and there's no expression in community amongst the body of Christ, there's a problem. All right, so um, I love what the, the picture that one guy, um, John Tyson, painted. He said it this way. He called Christian communities... Uh, a creative minority, and he said, a creative minority is a Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships knotted together in a living network of persons in a complex and challenging cultural setting. Do we have that? Amen. Um, who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. Okay? The brothers, the community, we commit together stubbornly for the renewal of the world, that this mercy of God would just explode out of us over and over and over again. And Hebrews 10 tells us this. It says that's what we ought to do. We ought to be together and we ought to provoke one another to love and good works constantly. So a real faith is an active faith. It's active in every sphere of our lives. And then finally, I'm gonna get to this. A real faith has gotta be a complete faith. Look at verse 18 and 19. Look at verse 18 and 19. And by the way, he, he illustrated this perfectly, didn't he? He's like, he gave us this picture of someone needing the, the like clothing and, and, and food and whatnot. And he says, oh, be warm and be well fed. It's like, that is so gross and so obtuse to say that. I mean, sadly, I can say that I've probably done that at some point in my life, sadly. Anyway, now he moves on, verse 18 and 19. He's going to tell us that real faith must be complete, Okay, so let's read that again. It says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So what James does here is he um, goes into a diatribe, which is this ancient form of rhetoric, which imagines conversations that would be taking place in response to the ideas being presented. And he imagines somebody saying in this way, like, hey, uh, you have faith, I've got works, separating the two. And then he imagines someone saying uh, in response, no, you show me your faith by, your, by, apart from works, I'll show you my faith by what I do. So he, he basically says, that that kind of lack of integration 
with our understanding and faith in Christ is impossible. It has to be complete. Okay, this is why we have to treat national surveys like people say, oh, there's, there's 70% Christians in America. I mean, when I was in England, we had like 1% church attendance. It was very post-Christian. And yet 70% of the people would say they're Christians. I'm just like, I'm not seeing it for, for real. Like it's not, I don't even see it one bit. Um, and we regard like these popular statements as like a win for our side, you know. And in the same way, you can't, if things start to go down, you never know how many Christians there really are out there. But these national surveys of people who proclaim Christ and have some, I have a faith in Jesus. They're as good for as much as the paper that it's written on is worth. It's like, it's just a survey. It's just what somebody says. It's a profession of faith. That's fine. Because what this passage reveals is that even better than some of those surveys are the demons. I mean, think about what he's saying here. The demons believe. He says, you say that God is one. You do well. I mean, this is going back to the Hebrew Shema, the call of Israel, the, the great statement in Deuteronomy 6 that says that God is one. Hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And he's saying like, you have good theology, right? So these demons have good theology. They're monotheistic, Trinitarian, Orthodox people, <laughs> Right? And one guy said, hell will be full of monotheistic, Trinitarian, Orthodox people. That's dangerous. Think about that. Think about what he's really saying. You know, the last time I got up here and preached, I was preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, and I was preaching Matthew 5-ish, and I was talking about anger and lust, so I got to get murder and adultery. I got the same passage, I guess. Um, but then, you know, I, at the end of that... In, in Matthew 7, when he gets to the end, he paints this picture of the foolish person and the wise person. I said the subtitle of my sermon was, don't be a fool. Well, today the subtitle of my sermon is, don't be a demon. You know, don't be somebody with good head knowledge and theology because that's a type of useless, useless faith. So let's, let's talk about the types that, that are possible. Because demons aren't Christians. Demons have good theology and they have a type of faith, but is it good? Well, no. So one type is knowledge-based faith. Knows a lot about God. Zealous to philosophize and ruminate on ideas to say, well, that's interesting and I agree with that. Not so sure about that. And, and to come and to sit in a church gathering in lecture style and say, well, you know what? That's very interesting. And let's go and just think more about that. but it never gets down into the heart. No growth in love for God, no character change, no desire. Like you don't like to sing the songs like, Jesus, I love you. No, it's just a thought process. It's useless. Another type would be emotion-based. So like you love singing the songs. You love to go to church retreats. You love to go from church to church to church. In fact, and it's like, hey, I get all the experiences. All the Christianity has to offer, but your life's like a roller coaster, up and down. It's never stabilized. It's never producing anything. And when it gets hard and squeezed, like in the situation in James, then you give up. Or commitment-based, useless faith. People who would say, yes, I am committed. And churches are filled with faith like this. Like, hey, and on one level, it's great. Like, serve, give money, you know, give, you can counsel people on how to live, the Bible even. But doing gets in the way because it, again, makes you feel like you've done it right, which makes you feel justified before God, not by faith, but by your works. So which one are you? I see all, all three of these. I have tendencies in different ways. And so that's why real discipleship is combining what theologians call orthodoxy, orthopraxy, orthopathy. We can have a slide, I think. And that's head, heart, hands. Because as Christians, we are oftentimes educated way beyond the level of our obedience. And that's what James is getting at. He's saying, not that works save us, but faith has to be complete. Faith has to be complete. Real, genuine, saving faith is complete. Now, I want to uh, finish up uh, doing a couple different things. Turn to Titus chapter 2, if you would. Um, and I'm going to read a couple things in Titus. Now, Titus, like I said, context is important. Titus was uh, on the Isle of Crete, which was hedonistic. 
you know, drunken living, you know, thieving, all these kind of things, lying. Um, and while in one sense we have a higher moral standard in America, we are very hedonistic. And so it would speak to us a little bit, I think. Um, we have like a off and on hedonism in our lives, it seems like. And so here's what it says in uh, Titus 2. It says, for the grace of God, verse 11, has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, which I take to mean all types because he's talking to Cre about Cretans and other types of people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, listen, who are zealous for good works. This matches up so good with James. He's saying, oh, it's the grace of God that Jesus appeared. It's all God's grace. But what God was accomplishing in his grace was to get a people and that people would be so impacted by the grace of God, they'd see that all of their just hedonistic lifestyle and ways are, did not produce anything of value. And so therefore we wanna be, the word is literally boiling over, zealous, like a tea kettle just going, you know, that is the idea of zealous, of boiling over. We are going to be after good works. Are you zealous for good works? Now look, we could defend ourselves all day and say, I'm saved by grace through faith alone. Yes, but let the passage do what the passage should do. Are you zealous for good works? What do you spend your time thinking about? What do you spend your time planning for and strategizing for? What do you spend your time ruminating and praying for and wanting and desiring more than anything else? You see, the life of Jesus was this way. It says in the book of Acts in chapter 10 that Jesus healed people, released them from demons, and it says he only went about doing good. Can you imagine a man that only goes and does good? in his own life, amongst his family, in his church, in the world? What would that look like? Has Jesus impacted you that much to where that's what you wanna do? Well, that's how you wanna be, how, that's what, how I wanna be, how we wanna just be the Christian community that's like, right, what's next? What are we doing? You know, what good can we do? How can we bless our city? You see, one of the tragedies of this whole COVID thing that's happened in our world and all the polarization stuff, I think that it's a strategy of Satan to get us to the point where we're not focused on what we should be doing and on so many other things. How many of us have spent the last two years worried about masks, no masks, you know, vaccine, no vaccine, you know, can I travel, not travel? And look, we have to deal with that. That's the context of our lives. But, and then it becomes in the church something we fight over and that we deal with. And it's like, look, Look, you wanna be with vaccinated people? Go be with vaccinated people. Just do good amongst vaccinated people. You wanna be with unvaccinated people? Not wear a mask? Go do good to unvaccinated people and don't wear a mask. I don't really care, do good, okay? Boil over into whatever community you find yourself and just do good like Jesus. Stop accusing each other of not wanting to do good because you don't wear a mask or because you do wear a mask. So, there are so many good works in the Bible. And again, since we're not earning our salvation, we're free in the law of liberty, we should be like, let's go after this. Think about it. And, and he goes as far here to say, insist upon this. Now you're like, whoa, <laughs> no one insists upon my life. Well, scripture does. And Paul says, I insist that you're careful to devote yourself, verse 14 of chapter three, to good works. So I'm gonna insist, not because I'm trying to control you, but because Paul insists, I'm gonna say, look, I insist that you're careful. In other words, you're gonna take account. Um, okay, like if you're an accountant, you have a ledger and you're gonna be like, this is our budget, this is what we're spending. Like we literally, I, see, this is where it's like, we can have a false faith because we don't think about it in metric practical terms. Like what are you actually producing in your life? Like it is what James is saying. So take careful measure. And again, be, because you're not condemned by Jesus, you can do it. Take an inventory. 
It's okay if you find out that you're not very good because that gives you the impetus to grow. So how many, and let's just go to the Matthew 25 category. Jesus said that's gonna be the basis of our judgment. Cup of cold water in his name, visiting people in prison, you know. In James, you have James 1.26 being with orphans and widows, being impartial in the faith, being controlled with our tongues as we talk about God and people, being peaceable and mutually yielding in relationships, being measured in our plans about life, being generous and simple in lifestyle instead of indulgent, being people of prayer, being those that encourage one another in community to keep going with the Lord. These are all good works that we could be about every single day. Isn't that great? We get to do this stuff. Now, so I insist... Be careful, take a ledger, devote yourself to this. What else are you gonna do with your life? I know husbands, it gets hard. You come home from work, you're tired. You just wanna watch sports, you watch the show. I do it, I've done it, but listen, your kids are gonna be gone soon. Pour into them. I know wives, kids, there's a context for all of you. There's many things we could do with our time and our money and our lives. As people famously said, you have one life, it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. So uh, now I want to just invite you into, I want to insist a little bit because I don't want you to do what I do, what we do sometimes and say, ah, you got faith, you got works. No, I say, show me your faith by what you do. Now I want to invite you. And I want to do that through telling a couple quick stories because I think that the Bible does both. It like insists upon us and it invites us very wonderfully and beautifully. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, by grace you're saved through faith, not of works that anyone should boast. It's a gift of God because we, for we are his workmanship, verse 10, created in him for good works that he prepared before and that we should walk in, that word for workmanship is the Greek word poema, which means poem or masterpiece. And what God says to you is, look, look, I've taken the pressure off. Do you want to walk in this masterpiece story that I'm writing in your life? Isn't that a wonderful way to think about your life that every day you get up, you're like, okay, Lord, what are you writing today? Isn't that a wonderful way to think about the Christian community instead of thinking about the fractions and the divisions and the petty disagreements and thinking about like, Lord, what do you want us to do? Well, I had the opportunity, like I said, I was gone last week and I went to this church. A friend of mine has a church called Missio Day in Cincinnati and I went there and I can't escape James. They're in James 126. <laughs> um, and so as I was there, um, they used, it was, I guess it was National Orphan Sunday apparently. And so they used, they, they've applied that in their context to be a church with adoption and fostering in, in their church as a way to love the orphan. And so they, um, told the stories, had some videos, and honestly, it was super, super compelling. I wrote in my notes, I'm just like, is God calling me to do something with this? I don't know, like, I gotta talk to my wife. Um, but, um, but just their story is amazing. They started with just, this is a church of like a couple hundred people. They started with three families, and now they've, they have a fund of like $60,000 that they've raised to like help people do fostering and adoption. They, they work with the city agencies to find kids in need. People can apply to their fund and get support. And then their stats were like 30 kids have been adopted by um, families connected with their church and 48 kids have been through their foster homes. And this is a small little church. And I was like, this is such a good illustration. What a beautiful story. And they shared the hard parts of the story. It's like, it hasn't been easy. No one said mercy is easy. No one said good works are easy. But if Christ paid the price for us on the cross, then we'll pay the price and count the cost. So that's one story. And then I had the uh, opportunity to talk to, because of my role, one of the, the missionaries that we support, Natalie, who was mentioned uh, this morning that we prayed for already. I'll just tell you about her a little bit because I started crying. I was just like, this is amazing. You know, I'm sat there in my car here in Boise, Idaho, talking to her. She's in Romania. And she starts telling me some of the stories about a girl named Sidonia that is a worker at the orphanage around there that she's just been having conversations with. She's a, an aid worker, so she's doing acts of mercy. She's not a Christian, but then like here she is like being encouraged. And then she's starting to read a devotional that Natalie's given her. And then like she started to actually pray about situations in her life and started to tithe. She's not even a Christian. Like, I mean, goodness gracious, that's amazing in the sense that like um, I'm so 
quick to not part with my money, you know? And there's this girl just like learning about Jesus and already like, hey, I wanna give towards this. And then um, she told me about an opportunity that came up where two elderly women said, hey, would you be able to come and talk to us about your faith and about Jesus? And these are elderly, elderly women who um, basically uh, have no one to talk to, totally isolated, without friends. And Natalie knows in that culture, like you don't go for an hour, like I'll meet you for a coffee for an hour. It's like, you go there, it's all day long. And she's already really busy, but she's going there and spending time with these women. Just think about a Romanian village out there somewhere that you've never even encountered in this pocket of the world. And right now us as a church, by the grace of God, get to be involved with that and see people being engaged with the Lord of mercy, Jesus Christ. What a story. Why wouldn't you want to go on a mission trip someday? Why wouldn't you want to support a missionary to do that? Why wouldn't you want to be doing good works? You know, there's a big difference in me saying, hey, do this and God will be happy with you. And me saying, God's happy with you. Go after it. So as we close up, um, I just want to say, different types of people here this morning, I'm sure. Um, Some people... Uh, you came in, maybe you're like, maybe it's true. Maybe I have broken this law of God. And I just want to say like, that's why there's mercy in Jesus Christ for you. You know, he paid the price so that you wouldn't have to, that he could judge you, that he could change your heart and he can make you the type of person that deep down you've always wanted to be. Second, uh, there are people here who, you know, maybe you need to do an examination of your faith and say like, hey, what's, What's, real, what's my heart? Is it a heart of mercy? <laughs> Do I bubble over for good works? Or am I a legalist and I'm breaking the things I say myself? Am I partial and judgy and what's going on in here? Or do I profess all these things but don't do them? Or do I not even feel love for God? Well, then I'd call you, like, come to Jesus again, if not for the first time, and just realize that he has been merciful to you. And then for some of us, maybe you're like, Amen to all this, but I'm tired. Okay, I'm doing good by the grace of God. I know it's not me. I'm in the story, right? And the story's kind of taking some turns. Well, let me just say Galatians 6, 9. Brothers, don't grow weary in doing well. For in due season, you will reap a harvest if you do not lose heart. Keep going. Keep pressing into more love and good works, not because you're earning favor from God, but because he's given you his favor already. So my encouragement to you this morning is keep going. Keep serving, keep loving, keep giving, keep, keep honoring, keep um, having communities that are impartial because that's what glorifies God. And honestly, that's the most amazing life to live.